All right, again, 801 in the Pew Bible. All right, I'll read out loud. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say, the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, and says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, made, who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your, on your faces, and the dung of your, off, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people, should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble in your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. May God bless the reading of his word. I now invite Pastor Jeff up. Good morning. We are uh, continuing in our sermon series through the book of Malachi this morning. We started this sermon series last week. And we've called this sermon series... 
a wake-up call, because that's essentially what it is, right? It's God speaking through Malachi and waking the people up against spiritual apathy, calling them towards a right relationship with God expressed through repentance and right worship. Malachi is, as we remember last week, is writing to a people who've come back from the exile. The excitement and the enthusiasm of returning has dissipated over these many years. And so he's writing to a people now who are spiritually apathetic, who are cynical, who are disillusioned, who are dishonest, who are callous and skeptical, and even some of them downright wicked. And so it's not just impacting their relationship with God, but it's also affecting their relationship with one another too. As we'll see in some of these passages, they're called out for treating each other with injustice and and unfaithfulness. And so this wake-up call covers six disputes, each with a claim or this charge made by God, and Israel pushing back, questioning God, disagreeing with him, with what he's saying, and then God responding and speaking about it some more. And so we saw last week uh, just an overview of these six disputes. Gaslighting God, that was last week, Malachi 1, 1 1-5. This week, this morning, dishonoring God. Next week, betraying God and impugning God, then robbing God, and then disparaging God. And last week, we, we covered this first dispute. God said to Israel, I have loved you. I've loved you. And that's covenant language here, meaning I have chosen you to be in a relationship with. Now, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will not forsake you. I am with you, not against you. And I don't just make a covenant, I keep it. But Israel said, right, how do you love us? I mean, you don't really love us. And if you really loved us, it wouldn't be this way. And the rest of this passage, last week, God was bolstering his claim to covenant love, steadfast, enduring love for his people. And see, one of the ways in which he did that was he pointed to Esau, which was Jacob's brother. And the point of that was that it could be argued that Esau had as much claim on God's favor as Jacob did. But God chose Jacob. God chose Israel, and this distinction between Jacob and Esau was made before either one of them was born. And so the point of that was it wasn't dependent on them. It wasn't dependent on how good they were. It wasn't dependent on what any, anything that they did, but it was solely dependent on God and his mercy. And God's discipline and his preservation of Israel in spite of their continued rebellion Generation after generation after generation, God's love for them is shown through his preserving them, disciplining them in love, him being faithful to them, even as they remained unfaithful to him. This was contrasted with the the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And so now we pick up this morning with the second dispute, the second charge, dishonoring God. You know, there's a contrast here between God's love for Israel, which we kind of talked about last week, and now in today's passage, Israel's failure to respond appropriately in right worship. And so our passage is laid out in two sections, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. 
In both sections, Malachi is addressing these priests, right? These leaders of Israel. But the first section, as he talks to them, is really establishing God as God. The second section is dealing with the failure to honor God as God. And so as always, always, I invite you to grab one of these pew Bibles or open up your Bible app. We're going to dive in and, and invite you to follow along as we work our way through this passage, as we hear from God through his holy word to us. So let me read verse 6 again. This is how our passage begins. A son honor his, honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And so this is the first point for us this morning. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. God is compared to two roles in this first verse, a father and a master. Two kind of different things, but there's a point here. It's it's those roles that ought to create, engender, instill in us a certain response from his people, the people in covenantal relationship with him. And so, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? You know, one of the, the Ten Commandments, right, is to honor our earthly father and mother. So given that God is our Father in heaven, our Heavenly Father, Malachi says, where is the honor due him? How much more does he deserve our honor and our praise? And so God has chosen to reveal himself in this way as a Father in line with him being our creator. right? The creator of the heavens and the earth and and everything and everyone in between. And now here as a master, it's, it's pointing to God, his role in this covenant relationship that we have with him. You know, we might remember from last week, we kind of laid out all these differences that highlighted uh, the differences between a covenant and a contract. Right? Two, different, two different things. A contract is typically between two equal parties where there's some negotiation involved, but God's covenant with his people is not between two equal parties. Not at all. And so the closest comparison that we might have, if we look at kind of the ancient Near Eastern history and kind of the the time period during that time, they had what you would call this suzerain-vassal treaty. It's something that a lot of the peoples back then did between a greater and a lesser party. And so the suzerain would provide benefits and protection to the vassal, and the vassal in turn owed the suzerain gratitude and love and loyalty. And here God identifying himself as a master is pointing to the relationship dynamic in this covenant that he has with his people. Right? In this covenant, God is God, and the people are not. And so God is looking for two things in our worship. Honor and fear. God is worthy of our worship. Now, fear is, is, is an interesting term, right? It's got a lot of connotations. We hear that, and we hear all these other things, and yet it's being tied to right worship, which doesn't sound right for some of us, right? We think of fear like being terrified. 
right? Being scared, stricken, paralyzed by fear, terrified of spiders or snakes or heights or scary movies or the future or the unknown, right? Is God really asking us to be terrified, you know, so paralyzed and stricken with fear as we worship him? Like, can you imagine, you guys came in this morning as you walked in and as we were singing, you come into Sunday worship, and the people around you have turned white as a sheet as they sing, you know, how great is our God. And then you hear them scream in terror, ah! What kind, what kind of worship is that? Now, on the flip side, on the flip side of fear and terror and being terrified, right? Some translations translate the Hebrew word reverence or respect. But I think reverence and respect for some of us today might, might be too benign and safe, right? Respecting someone usually means showing them some form of politeness. You respect your elders. You respect, you know, celebrities or people that you, that you, you know, acknowledge, and acknowledge their worth and their contribution. So maybe, you know, that you take your hats off, right? We take our hats off when we sing the national anthem. Maybe we'll stand up when they enter the room. Maybe we'll do a little, a little head bow or something when we shake their hands. I don't know. But respect here is it's acknowledging that person's worth and achievements, right? But sometimes it doesn't always cause you to behave differently. Or it doesn't really change you, right? You know, I see people talking about sports players all the time. Right? I, you know, I got to respect the GOAT, whether that's Brady or MJ or Messi or whoever, right? But then you also hear them say, I hate them so much, right? I respect them, but I hate them too, right? Because maybe you're a Jets fan or you're, you know, whatever, whatever team that you, you don't like, you're a Knicks fan. And, and, and you know, so if I hate them so much, when I'm at the game, I'm going to trash talk them. I'm going to heckle them. I'm going to question them. I'm going to taunt them, right? And many times in, in Scripture, fear, this word fear, is the appropriate response to God. Fear is more than just respect, but less than terror, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan and Lucy are getting ready to meet Aslan the lion, who represents Christ. And there's these two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they prepare the children for the encounter. And so uh, it goes something like this. You know, oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver, and make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The God that we worship is king. He's the one to be feared. And no, he isn't safe, but he is good. And God is worthy of our worship. And worship that includes honoring God and also fearing him. 
But what is to keep us, right, from being so terrified, so stricken with terror? What's to keep us from worshiping him solely out of a desire not to be smited by God and sent to hell? I think it's what Mr. Beaver said, right? That he isn't safe, but he is good. Right? This is what, as we grow and mature in faith, to be able to hold these things together in tension. Right? What keeps God's holiness and majesty, his set-apartness, his godness, what keeps that from producing in us the terror, that terror, is the truth that God is good. He is not capricious, he's not evil, he's not malevolent, and he loves us. Right? These are the things that we have to hold in tension together in our worship of him. One commentator put it this way, Jay Gerhard said this, the fear of God is to be united with the love of God. For love without fear makes men remiss, and fear without love makes them servile and desperate. So God is worthy of our worship. He seeks our honor and our fear, a fear that results in awe and trust and obedience. As we think about what is being asked here, for some of us, it might seem a little bit egotistical, right? For God to instruct and command us, where is my honor? Where is my fear? You need to worship me. I am deserving of your worship. Now, if you felt this way, you wouldn't be alone. There's many people who, who have taken issue with God's godness. I remember in a couple articles that was cited by John Piper, he, he noted this. Brad Pitt, in an interview 16 years ago, said, you know, religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there is something bigger than you, and it's, it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. You know, I grew up believing in it, and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. You know, if you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. Oprah Winfrey remembered being in a church where the preacher was talking about God's attributes. And she explained, then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. She said, I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28 and I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent. God is also jealous, a jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Even C.S. Lewis in his early years, the one who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, took issue or had struggled with this idea of God-centeredness. And he was writing at a time, and so maybe some of this needs to be updated, but he wrote this. God's demand to be praised sounded like God craving for our worship like a vain woman, or we could say a vain man, who wants compliments. So all of these people, 
took issue with God's God-centeredness, God's godness, seeing it as more ego than anything else. That God was an egotistical God to demand our worship. So I ask, is God an egomaniac? You know, when we think about this idea of being egotistical, why, why do we have such an issue with it? And some of us might know some egotistical people, right? And I think one of the definitions for this, for egotistical, is that it's this indifference, right, to the well-being of others. That, that's to say that a person is so self-centered, so conceited, so absorbed in themselves that they have literally no regard, zero regard for the people around them. They can't even tell that the things that they're saying, how it's impacting the people around them. Does this sound like God to you? Hopefully not. And yet when we hear that God requires our worship, God is asking, where is our, where is our worship? It rubs us, some of us, maybe not everyone, the wrong way. But I believe that praising God, beholding him, worshiping him, not just for his glory, it's also for our good. Some of you have heard of a syllogism before. Maybe it was an English class or whatever class, right? And for example, all men are mortal. I am a man, therefore I am mortal. Right? Syllogism is two premises that, which, if both true, lead to a conclusion. And so I borrowed one from one of these pastors, and he, I simplified it down. The first premise is this. Love desires, works, and even suffers to bring the beloved, the fullest happiness. And so when you love someone, right, you want to work towards making them happy. And not just happy, but really happy. Right? So if you ever plan a birthday party for your friends, you love your friend, you tend to get them a birthday cake, right? But now you could get any cake, you get anything, they would be happy probably. But no, you go out and you buy their favorite cake or you try to figure out what they like. Because right? you want them to have this joy. You want them to be pleased, and you try to figure out what they like. Maybe it's a Carvel ice cream cake, right? Maybe it's a cake from one of those Asian bakeries. You know, because you know that getting their favorite cake would give them the fullest amount of happiness. Or maybe you bake a cake yourself, if you know how to bake. Now here's the second premise, right? The fullest happiness is found in God. Scripture tells us in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so the fullest happiness is found in God. And yet sometimes there's something tugging our hearts away from this deeper, all-satisfying happiness, isn't there? Again, from C.S. Lewis, he writes about this in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, you know, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the reward's promise in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles, mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
But here we have two premises, right? Love desires, works, and even suffers to bring the beloved the fullest happiness. And the fullest happiness is found in God. So putting these two things together, we arrive at the conclusion that love brings the beloved to God, the source of our fullest happiness. And so for God to call us this morning, to call you this morning to seek him, to praise him, to worship him. That is, in part, him loving us. Because it is only in God as we behold him that we have infinite joy, complete satisfaction, total fulfillment, an everlasting experience of perfect love. That what you have been searching for, the sense of emptiness, the lack of fulfillment, the mundaneness, your days of wandering and feeling lost, all of that can only be satisfied in God. It's not easy though, right? Lewis wrestled with this himself. He said, I do not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us, to men. It is not, of course, the only way, but for many people at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly or only while they worship him together. Much like what we were doing earlier during this service. He says, our joy is no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. The, so he says, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, to worship God, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God is worthy of our worship. Lewis is pointing out that, that praising something is a cause of joy in our life. It helps to complete it too. God's call to worship him is an opportunity for us to experience that consummate joy. The command to praise him, to worship him is for our benefit too. But now, all right, if this is the case, having established this, then we look at the priests. The priests have clearly fallen short of following through with that. In both sections, God is addressing the priests, the leaders of Israel, and charging them with despising his name. And as we see with each of these disputes, they push back, they question, right? They say, but you say, how have we despised your name? Name is repeated eight times in this passage. It's something that God is clearly concerned about and tied to the people's worship. When the Bible speaks about God's name, it's usually speaking about the essence of God's being. It's the manifestation, the expression, the representation of God's nature and his character, who he is. And it can range in meaning from referring to God's reputation to God's name being equivalent to God himself. The point, though, is that these priests and the people were despising God's name, and in doing so, were dishonoring God. The people were bringing, they were in their animal sacrifice, they were bringing these inferior animals for sacrifice, and the, and the priests were offering these defiled, unfit sacrifices to God. So both were complicit in this careless worship, this cheap worship, 
worship of God. Twice, God calls what they're doing evil. That's a serious charge, right? It's not that, you know, I made a mistake or it's a mishap. It's a moral action that they're doing. They're offering this polluted offering rather than a pure offering. Animals that were blind or lame or sick. In verse 14, God calls them out for basically vowing, like saying, hey, I'm going to give you my best animal, my my best goat or my best heifer or whatever. And then when the time actually comes, they switch it with another. They're giving to God the kinds of animals that would lessen the economic financial impact on them. Right? They're saying, I'm going to give you my best. And then when it comes, they're saying, well, I, I don't know. I'm actually, like, I'm in a bind. Or, like, you know, God is going to be okay if I just give him this blind thing or, like, this cheap thing or whatever, right? They're keeping for themselves what is best. God says in verse 8, like, try that with your governor. Try that with the people in your life. Right? See how pleased they would be. Like if, can you imagine if you were inviting someone that you respected, someone that you followed their teachings and their, their books that they put out or their content or whatever, you invited them over for dinner and you fed them like McDonald's or the dollar menu or something like that, right? Would you, would you I don't even think that thought would cross your mind. You try to figure out, I'm going I'm to prepare something. I don't usually cook, but I'm going to figure out how to cook to, to show them that love and that care and that adoration, right? God says, you wouldn't do it with these people. Why would you do it with me? So the issue here, though, it's more than just polluted offerings. It's a polluted heart. You know, when we drill down beyond all this surface level actions, right? Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. And so the the priests, when we drill down to it, have this attitude, right? This heart that sees worship of God as tiresome, as boring, as a burden. There's no joy. None at all. They're going through the motions. They see no value in their role in offering sacrifices to God. They didn't have a heart that honored God. They had a heart that held him in contempt, that despised his name. And so the core issue here is not the sacrifices but our hearts. In verse 10, Malachi 1, he says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not accept an offering from your hand. Right? God desires a heart of obedience, not just a sacrifice. He desires a heart of worship, not hands that go through motions. He would rather, from this verse, accept no sacrifice at all rather than an empty sacrifice. You know, oftentimes, we come before God without a heart of worship. 
but rather a heart that is content with hypocrisy or superficiality. A heart that hesitates to give God our best. It might be an attitude, right? Like the priest, we're just bored with God. We're tired. We're worship of God. We're trying to even sing. Can't even bring ourselves to sing because it's more of a burden than a blessing. And our response then is to cheapen our worship. To go through the motions of what is expected. Not to truly honor or fear him. God is worthy of our worship. Malachi continues with this second and last point. Cutting corners in our worship doesn't cut it. He calls out these priests again, right? He says he will send a curse upon them. This is strong language here. He says in verse 3, I will spread done on your faces, the done of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Man, that is some expressive language here, right? Don here is, is probably talking about the entrails, the waste parts of the animals that were being sacrificed. These were the parts that would be discarded, disposed of by burning it outside the camp. And he's saying the priests are going to be taken away with it as well. They will be disposed of just like Don. So that the priests who despise God would, in fact, in turn, be despised themselves. The priests, you know, these were the people who were part of the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi. They were supposed to teach Israel, God's people, God's instructions. They were to lead them in paths of righteousness. They were to carry out their responsibilities of worship and sacrifice with a God-fearing reverence and honor. But they didn't just fall short. This wasn't just them having a bad day. They went the complete opposite way. And so they were leading people away from God, not not to him. And so their actions, their lives, their instructions were leading people into the other issues that then end up coming up in this book. Unfaithfulness in their marriages, injustice, and oppression to one another. And as as we look at the priests of Israel... And the people who follow them, Malachi continues to remind us with each charge, with each passage, that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, our hearts. Even the the priests who were to intercede for these people, who were to be a model for them, to lead them in this worship, in the temple, in the tabernacle, they were imperfect and they were insufficient. Now today, living on this side of the cross, we know that we have a great and perfect high priest in Jesus. Someone who could do what all these other people before could not. In Hebrews 7 it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need 
like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. You see, even as God sends a wake-up call to the, the priests and the people of Israel, and through them, us, we look to Jesus, who is our example, who is the one who intercedes for us, and who by the Spirit gives us a new heart of flesh, not of stone, that with this heart we might be able to enable to trust and obey, to honor and to fear God. I want to close with this. Back in the the 90s, Matt Redman, some of you know Matt Redman, he was a Christian worship artist. He wrote a song called The Heart of Worship. It's a really old song, I think, for some of us. And it came out during a period of apathy within his home church in England. You know, this was at a time where all these Christian music artists were like figuring out new things and really improving things, and things were like, it's like heyday, right, of, of Christian, uh, 90s Christian music, right, Christian worship. But at the same time, there was this sense of apathy, the sense of the lack of genuine heartfelt worship that was coming. And so I want to play this video, and I'm going to see if it works, uh, of him sharing about the story and explaining what the song was about. So let's play it now. Seem to come up as we sing in response the same song, The Heart of Worship. As we sing, I invite you to come before God in confession and to consider what might we bring as an offering to God? What might we offer to Him? Because we know the worth of God. He is deserving of all glory and honor and praise. And praising Him it invites us to greater and deeper joy. I'll turn it over to